Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast. I am Dale Luganville. Thank you very much for joining me. Your guest today for Waterfall Wednesday is Brian Huber, or Birdieologist, as he's known on Instagram. Uh, don't have a Waterfall Wednesday with Nick Johnson for you. We recorded one last night. Something went wonky on the, I assume, was the SD card because the audio was just not usable. And it was a pretty good episode, too. I was pretty bummed about that. But in lieu of that, I got a hold of Brian Huber and just literally got off the phone with him and I'm going to slap this thing together and give it to you on Wednesday. So you still waterfallers can still dork out on waterfall stuff. Just like Nick is here in spirit. I, I, I'm sure that he is. <laughs> so let's get to this waterfall Wednesday with Brian Huber. <laughs> Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Ooh, I love that sound. This is a good one. Welcome, Brian, to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be on. Kind of hoping to get you on last week when I had um, Nick Johnson's ear. He's he's like our resident bird nerd out here, and he would have a shit ton of questions for you. (laughs) So he's just going to have to listen to this one like everybody else. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And I recorded a Waterfall Wednesday with him last night, actually, and I don't know if the SD card was corrupt or what, but, like, my audio was fine. But when I went to edit it, his audio was unusable. So huh. it sounded fine when we were doing it. So I don't know what the deal was. I don't know. Well, that really sucks. Weird. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I emailed or I texted him this morning. I'm like, uh, I got bad news, dude. <laughs> we, got, we got to do it again. <laughs> yeah, and it was a good one, too. It was, yeah. it, was, it was funny. It was good. Whatever. So here we are. I'll probably, as soon as we're done. This is going to be super fresh, hot off the presses. When we're done here, I'm going to edit it and upload it, so there'll be no oh, nice. there'll be no downtime. Yeah, because I don't have anything from it's Wednesday and I have nothing, so this will it's be my waterfall Wednesday. Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, I just did my Instagram post white front Wednesday because we uh, put a couple collars on some white fronts on Friday, so Ooh. figured it was fitting for today. Well, I like it when you talk dirty. <laughs> all right well, that's a good place to start let's start with the uh, neck collar studies on white fronts yeah so we're um i work my name's brian huber i work for uh, california waterfowl association i'm a waterfowl biologist for them um 
we're currently just wrapped up our postseason trapping project. So we were uh, we pretty much target pintails. Um, in previous years, we had a contract with some uh, USGS folks and a girl who's doing her grad project on white-fronted geese. And so we had a contract. We were basically um, the catchers, so we would catch the birds, put the transmitters on, and then basically they would handle all the data and stuff. So they had a couple leftover collars. Um, our last net shot that we had last week, we got lucky and caught a couple white-fronted geese in it, and so we were able to get a couple more collars out. So that was kind of cool. How long has that program been going on? Oh boy, I think it's on the 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 funding really dried up this year, so we didn't get any more collars. We just are kind of reusing collars that uh, hunters are turned in or we've uh, refurbished or whatever. So um, I think it's going on. This would be the fourth year doing it. So yeah, it's got some pretty amazing stuff. They're still. It's kind of one of those things, it's tough, like um, when you get into these research projects, you know, we have so many partners and a lot of the partners don't want to share too much information, right? Because they're trying to publish papers and do all this research and stuff. So um, it's kind of frustrating because my perspective, I like to share, I like to show what's going on. You know, when we get, I can look at the the callers on my phone, I can see where they're at, but I can't really share a lot of that information, you know, because sure. we don't want people out there chasing down the callers right. and all that stuff. <laughs> Nobody so. would do that. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. So, Nick. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's fun. I mean, um, it's amazing the data that we can get off of these new GPS callers. Um, we're also putting them on ducks, um, not on a collar, but it's a backpack style where it kind of straps on the back of the bird. And, you know, they're charged by solar panels. They run off of cell phone towers. Um, you can you can change the frequency of how many points you get. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing the data huh. you get. You know, like with a regular band, you kind of get two points. You know, you get the banding location, then you get wherever it's harvested or recaptured, and that's pretty much all you get. But with this new this new technology, I mean, we're getting data points every five minutes if we want. So it's just an insane amount of data. That's really good information. I mean, as far as just tracking their movements – you know, cause... Yeah, movements, and then, you know, it's crazy. Most people probably don't realize, but you can kind of tease out, like, nesting success, you know? Like, if the bird's sitting in a certain area for a certain amount of days and, you know, she's more or less, you assume she's incubating a nest, well, you can tell, you know, oh, she incubated there for 30 days. She probably sure. had a successful hatch. She's staying really close. She's probably raising a brood. So, I mean, it's pretty value, real valuable information. That's why most of these studies are focused on females, you know, because you get that whole nesting cycle as well. Right, and... I mean, with just visual confirmation of a net call or somebody calling it in, or even, you know, when the radio, when the transmitters back in the day, maybe they weren't as reliable and you're only getting a, you know, ping every few days. It's right. like, yeah. just because you had, you know, your last bit of information was this goose was in whatever town in California and then it shows up in Saskatchewan. You don't know what it, and it may be four or five days in between there. You don't know where it went. Did it go left, right? right? Did it, when did it leave? Yep. You don't, I mean, you're missing out yeah. on a, a ton of some, information. Yeah, we had some, uh, one of the things I can share is we had some tule geese that we had marked, and they went up kind of in the Yukon Delta up in Alaska. So on their on their um, early migration back in the, um, the um, God, I'm drawing a blank, just the, their migration, their fall migration back down the flyway, they, uh, they were up there in Alaska, and it, within three days, they made it all the way down to California, and they took basically a nonstop flight. They stopped in the ocean for a little tiny bit, um, maybe I think it was like four hours, and you could see like where the current carried them in the drift. So there was like this big loop, 
and then they got up and flew right down to California. So it's just amazing what, uh, how fast they go and like their different migration routes that they take, you know? It, the, the white fronts are incredible on their migrations. I know there was, yeah. what was it last year? I think it was last year. Same thing. One of these radio, radio studies where bird, you know, left the nesting ground somewhere in Alaska it was in like Saskatchewan or something for a few weeks. And once it decided to leave there, blew straight through. I mean, I think it had one stop for like six or eight hours in Kansas or something. And then just went the rest of the way to Louisiana or Arkansas or wherever it ended up. It's like that yeah. one, you know, reaching up speeds of like 200 some miles an hour. Just like, holy crap. Yeah. They just kind of, they catch the, the, when the draft and the currents are right in the air, they just kind of catch those drifts and just cruise on down with the, with the weather, helping them move them down. That is nuts. Yep. Pretty so what's, crazy. What's the difference in a tool goose versus a uh, regular so white tool, front? Tule geese is like a subspecies of white fronted geese. They're really, um, they nest up in Alaska in the YK Delta area. Um, they're, they're really hard to tell apart. Um, they're more or less, they're a bigger, darker bird. And so the population on those is really like, last I heard, it's like right around 11,000. And so it gets, there's a kind of an area in the Sacramento Valley that they typically generally hang out in. And so that area is like a special management zone for them. So there's like restrictions on white front hunting in that zone. Mm. So it gets kind of into the weeds and stuff about that, but yeah, they're, they're basically a subpopulation that we see in winters in California. And so um, with our regulations and stuff, we have to kind of accommodate them. Sure. That's pretty cool. So, they, um, yeah. is there, are there any other like special distinguishing features? I mean, I know they're all pretty similar, but like as far as the barring is. The generally the chest, there's, yeah, generally less? there's less, less barring. Generally it's a, a bigger, darker. What I've found when I was, I actually worked on that project for a year where we drive around with the radio transmitters and we try and locate them and we, we do the, um, ratio estimate so we'd find tule geese and then we'd estimate how many are collared versus how many are not collared to try and estimate the population and what i really noticed was they're just a the darker neck on the bird you know and then like um if you know you're seeing them on the water a lot of times when you're doing these surveys so you would see a white fronted goose and you'd be like oh that's just barely bigger than a duck and then you'd see a tule goose and be like dude that thing's like two or three times as big as a duck so they're definitely bigger Really, the only way to officially tell is to measure the bill and get the correct measurements off the okay. bill and the column length and stuff. And then um, that's like the surefire way. But, you know, it's even as a biologist, trained biologist, it's really hard to tell when they're on the ground. I mean, it's near impossible to tell when they're flying. So yeah, you almost need that really hard. something to compare them to, you know, when it's yeah, exactly. you know, yep. even like a greater, yeah. greater or lesser snow. You know, if they're by yeah. themselves, I mean, yeah. good luck. You know, it's yep. like if yep. you have something to compare to, you're like, oh, okay, I see a size difference there. Yep. And they, you know, like they tend, they're kind of, they call them like clannish birds. So they kind of hang out in big clans and stick together. And then um, they do generally stick in like more of like a wetland habitat. You know, I think that's where they get the name Thule Goose is because they are more associated with wetlands instead of like the ag fields and stuff that we have around here. So, What do you think the determining factor is? Like, how do they know um, to hang out with their own? Is it? Is it the habitat? Is that's what, you know, maybe they just have a fondness um, for the wetlands versus fields? Yeah, so I mean, it's part of that, default? but it's just, yeah, it's it's more just um, 
family packs i would imagine so like these birds are probably breeding together nesting together hanging out together and they just tend to stay in those big family groups or you know i don't even know the right word but like a community group you know like a a neighborhood like they just move as a neighborhood kind of i would assume you know because they're all nesting together and they just kind of kind of hang out and stick around together i'm curious if there's a different like if their call is slightly different are you aware of any studies that talk about that Um, i mean i've I, I haven't heard of any, but I've I've heard them call, and they're definitely a little bit different. It's uh, it's more like a sharper, um, sharper, deeper tone from what I remember. Okay. Um, but it's it's hard to distinguish. It's not you know it's not something where you're just like oh that's a tule goose right know, or, right. But to the goose you know, itself, it probably can pick it up. Oh yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. No different than I mean, humans. You know, you can pick accents. You know. Right. Like, yeah. English. No, I mean, English to a. You know any other language it all sounds the same but right as americans you know or i should say american not english american english sounds the same but to us it's like i can tell if you're from arkansas ohio or minnesota you know what i mean it's or like california, we can hear right? you're california <laughs> we can hear the different you know we can yeah. hear the difference but to other people it's like no you just sound american so well it's crazy to me is like you know these geese right they typically mate for life right unless they lose their partner so it's like they're in these giant groups. I mean, to me, every single goose looks about the same, but they're able to, you know, pick out individuals and and all that stuff. That whole social social networking that you just don't really right. understand. You know, it's pretty amazing. So. Yeah, when you bring that point up, it does. It definitely seems like it's call oriented. You know, you get in those big nesting grounds and how they're able to yeah communicate, communicate and, yep. and stumble their way through thousands of other ones and get right to their nest. It's pretty yep. pretty incredible. Yep. Uh, what is how how many callers are out at any given time usually? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, we had at one point we had a bunch out, a couple hundred, but um, a lot of them got shot. I mean, the average you know life expectancy is not that long on geese in general. So I mean, geese they live longer. Um, with the callers, you know, they it definitely um, changes their body. Um, their body kind of status a little bit, you know, like it's, it's hinders them a little bit, I would imagine. So their life expectancy is probably a little less um, with the callers. Do you notice any like behavioral differences or like social, Um, social interactions? I haven't, you know, I haven't really been able to tease any of that out, but I think they're probably going to look into that with all these studies that they're doing and our partners with USGS and um, all these other folks that are kind of more managing the data. We're more on the side of catch the birds, get the collar on, and then they, they kind of manage all the data and stuff. Is it, is the collar at this point kind of a backup plan to the transmitter? I mean, if you're getting the data of where it is, how important is the actual collar? Um, well, yeah, it's not that important. I mean, it's the only, the biggest factor is just the price, right? These things are $1,500 a piece. And then you add in, um, data plans, you know, like cell phone plans and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's really the cost, you know, they're, they're definitely not cheap. And so anytime we can get the color back, it's beneficial to redeploy it or. Oh, sure. I just meant as far as like, you know, before transmitters where you just have a collar, you know, and it was like the big numbers you could. Oh yeah. You don't have to have the bird in hand, right? You can just read the number and right. Yeah. So for like nesting, yeah. So like for nesting stuff, you know, and when these when the birds are up in the nesting grounds and they can just sit there with a spotting scope and and get all that information. But you got to think of 
the time it takes, right? You have all the you have to pay somebody to sit out there and look, and then you you know like you get hunter reports or photographers or stuff too. Yeah. But it's you get you know the amount of data you know that you're getting from those compared to these GPS collars is it's just not even comparable. Yeah, I guess I guess the point I was trying to make is like maybe just the the GPS trackers or are the, are the are the chips in the collar itself? It's not like a backpack or is it in the collar? I guess I was, I was it's in the, the collar. Yeah. No, everything's oh, contained okay. within the collar. I gotcha. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking in my mind, I was thinking a collar and a transmitter as a, you know, a backpack transmitter like you'd have on a duck. Oh yeah. yeah. No, so it's, it's either thing, a, yeah, it's either a collar or a backpack. So like the ducks we put on a backpack and then the geese, they just get a little collar on the, they on get the, the collar and that does everything. Yep. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's, I think that's why we're not quite talking about the same thing. I, I was yeah. like, why do they have both? Like, you're getting more information yeah. from the, in my mind, was a backpack transmitter. Yeah. Like, why yeah. even bother with the collar if there's a risk of it being a hindrance or or that's a target? Right. You know, I mean, people, that there are, you know, like we've joked about, but there are people out there that are going to try oh, to yeah, hunt those down. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's, it's kind of funny because they're almost creating their own demise of collars, right? Because, if we put out the plastic collars, you know, with just the numbers, we're not getting that much info and we have to put a bunch of them out there to get the same amount of info if we just banned a couple hundred with the GPS collars, right? Right. So basically by ban collar hunting and ban hunting, they're basically taking away that that resource for us. So we're I mean, not that many people are putting too many more collars out on birds, just general collars, you know. So So you're tracking studies out there on these white fronts. Where are you where are they going? Are they are they venturing east much or is it pretty much a north south it's pretty much north yeah they go up to um mostly up to you know, alaska and breed up there okay yep so that flyway is pretty much i mean what, what i guess of this study so far the information that you've got what what's like those things that stand out in your mind that are like some kind of like like an aha moment or a, oh holy shit or you know what kind of things have, have you come across um, you know, like some of the white geese have like completely switched flyways. So that was kind of unexpected. So we had some that would go up to like kind of the North slope and then they would start, um, heading more East. So that was kind of like a, Whoa, what's going on here? Um, and then they would go up, uh, you know, with some of the other birds, they would go up to Canada one year, come back and then go up, uh, come back to Canada and then go down to like Louisiana and back up. And so there was just amazing just switching flyways and stuff. But kind of like I said, you know, I haven't really gotten a chance to tease out a lot of that data. It's kind of all um, under wraps and not really out there for, for, for me or other people to see right now. So we're just kind of waiting for them to are they just partners. is there a timeline like yeah you mentioned something like they're not sharing information because they want to write studies like i don't i don't quite understand that dynamic like why wouldn't you share that i get it i get it not trying to you know let it out to the general public because it could be misused but yeah it's just i mean it's really a lot of it's um funded for specific projects and so they're trying to answer specific questions. You know, one of the projects is looking at the competition of geese and ducks and food availability. So once they, they want to get all their info and, you know, they don't, um, for the most part, you know, they're more focused on what, what their study entails, not really what's cool to like you and I or hunters. And so they're not really apt to, to be out there and sharing a lot of the information. So it's yeah, kind of you're, a, but you're kind of looking at the same information, but through a different lens, right? As a biologist, if you have your study, and they have, so they're looking at the competition of food source, and so maybe you're just looking at movement. You know, like right. you're getting the same information, but you're applying yeah, it I mean, to it, a different. 
perspective. It comes, I think it really comes down to they, you know, a lot of these studies and stuff, they want, they want the data for themselves. Right. So if you put out that data, then they don't want somebody else to be able to jump on it and, and use it or something. So that's, that's kind of a reason why they, a lot of these projects like to keep stuff quiet more or less, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate where I work with California waterfowl. Um, we're not, we're a private nonprofit organization, you know, and my organization's um, pretty good about letting us share information. You know, a lot of these banding projects and stuff, they don't like to share. They want to keep it hush hush. And uh, so that's kind of a lot of like why I started the whole Instagram page is just kind of sharing what biologists do and trying to kind of just be support the hunter side of it. You know, like this is a lot of this funding is coming from hunters, you know, and just showing what, what we're doing with that money and kind of holding biologists accountable, you know, and there's a lot of biologists out there that don't like to share information or, you know, they think it creates ban hunters or all, all kinds of stuff. But, um, we just, just try and share what we do and try and, uh, try and kind of bridge that gap with waterfowl hunters and science. I mean, there's for sure a few a handful of people that would definitely, you know, they are band hunters or collar hunters or whatever, but it, it isn't the vast majority. I don't think it would be enough to skew numbers that bad. I think that'd be an easy category to figure into an overall equation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, that's kind of, you know, like I'm real careful about, yeah, like all, we're, we're doing all, a lot of our work in California, you know, but I'm not going to give out exact locations. And, you know, you just think about the stuff that you're going to put out there and you just, um, you know, you don't give exact locations. You don't give GPS coordinates to the latest goose caller, you know, so somebody can run out there and try and track it down. So, yeah, you just got to be smart about it and just just share, you know, it, it's uh, I'm very fortunate to have this job. It's a lot of fun and it's fun sharing it, too, you know, and just seeing the response of people that um, like to see what we do. So I've often said that, you know, as a hunter myself, it's like if I it would be cool to randomly get one that was collared or whatever be like that's pretty neat but i've always said there would be a part of me that would also be like dang it you're not getting that now that this thing is no longer giving information you know what i mean like right yeah but i'm I'm interested in those migration routes and i I like all that that kind of information so it's like i'd be happy but also be a little like ah dang it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but see, that's a good data point too, because it's a random, you know, ex- encounter that it, where it, it met its demise, you know. So that's right. still a good data point, you know. So yeah, I yeah, I yeah. fully understand that. You know, the harvest of it is, you know, all data is important data, you know, to be yep. to be punched into the the equation. Yep. But just me personally, I would don't get me wrong. When I say I feel a little bad, I mean it's going to be the smallest percentage of of my emotions yeah. <laughs> in this exchange. So, I mean, it's like I tell people, man, if I, if I'm out hunting geese and I see a collar, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to not shoot it, you know, right. but I'm not at the same time. I'm not going to sit there all day, land thousands of geese and, you know, base my successful hunt. If I shot a band or not, sure, you know, that's where yeah, I draw yeah, the line. Yeah, it's yeah, like, you know, I, I like to go and hunt. I'm not going to, you know, if I don't shoot a band, it's not going to dictate if I had a good hunt or not. You know, I think that's kind of the, the difference there. Is that how you got into this line of work? Did you start out? Yeah, I was. A, a I mean, I was. A, yeah, I didn't. I didn't grow up waterfowl hunting, but um, once I got into college, uh, one of my good friends got me into it, and then uh, I just got hooked. And I was. Uh, I go. To, I went to Chico State, and so I was kind of walking through the hallway, and I saw this flyer for like waterfowl ecology class, and I was like, "Holy smokes, what is this?" And uh, I was. I went and talked to the professor, and it was pretty funny because he was. Uh, 
he was real strict and he's like, Oh, this isn't a class for hunters. You know, this is a biology class and you need to be a biology major to take this class. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to be a biology major. And so kind of that kind of changed everything, man. And just kind of went to school, got all the degrees or got all the courses I needed to get into that class. And then, um, helped start a California waterfowl chapter at Chico state. And so that kind of helped me get my foot in the door. And then, uh, got hired on on a rocketing crew and have been there more or less off and on ever since that was in 2009 when i first started that's pretty awesome yeah. you run into uh i have to assume california that you run into a fair amount of resistance for the hunting aspect the hunting side of it i mean it's it's there um it's there and you know like in the news and social media and stuff but i've never really ran into it in the field you know i'll get some people that comment some just stupid stuff on instagram every once in a while but it's bad i mean but that you know if you've never been to california it's kind of like these real dense bubbles of population and then the rest of california is like country you know i mean where i live it's not um it's not as liberal as the bay area and all that stuff you know i mean it's everybody duck hunts up here everybody fishes there's farming it's ag it's just the perception of california is very different than actual california so on did you receive like on campus like were the other students in your class fall along any sort of like stereotypical uh i mean anywhere you have like the big colleges you're gonna have a little more liberal towns um that's just kind of the nature of it, I guess. It's weird, but, right? Um, like, I don't know why that. Yeah. I don't know what that has to do with anything. But uh, yeah, I know. It's. A, I think it's just the the city life versus the rural life. You know, like most people are. I don't know. They're comfortable living in a city with people around, or versus like experiencing. You know, working outside, nature, ag, farming, hunting, fishing, all mm-hmm. that stuff. So. Yeah, it's, it's been part of a few online debates recently with because the, the wolf thing is popping up here yeah, in this state again. And it's a very emotionally charged subject, um, but it's that when when you get into a debate with somebody and you, and you try to explain to them, like, yeah, I hunt, but that doesn't mean I'm trying to eradicate anything. Like, I, Right, yeah. That kind of, yeah, I actually want more around. Kind of, you know, like, yeah. th- that's a really hard and most people don't, most like people that are against hunting don't really understand that hunters are the ones kind of footing the bill for all the habitat, all the conservation that goes into yeah, you, having all these animals around in the first place. You, you know? bring that up and they just blow right past it. I mean, I've had, yeah. I've had the counter argument yeah. of people like, well, you only want more of them so that you have more to kill. I'm like, right. well, that's yeah. not entirely true. That's definitely yeah. a side effect of it. But then you try to bring up like, yeah, but there's all sorts of non-game species that are that get to take full advantage of this restored that habitat, yeah, you know, like it's not yeah. just, and, and it's kind of falls into, I just ranted about this not too, not too long ago, but it falls into that kind of um, sacrifice few for the good of the many, you know, if there's, if hunting them ultimately through license sales and conservation clubs and whatever ultimately leads into more of them in total population is how is that not a better like in your perfect world, you would rather ban hunting and have less animals. I mean, is that what you're telling me? Because yeah. that's what you're ending yeah, up with. Just, it doesn't. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand. Their it. brains kind of blow up, and yeah, and that's what you know. It's funny. A lot of people are like, 
you know, have this stereotype of California and it's, it's true. A lot of like the politics and stuff that happen here are, are pretty bad. You know, they just tried to ban bear hunting, um, all out bear hunting. And it's like, none of it is based off of science. It's all just emotional stuff, you know? And so that it just gets frustrating trying to deal with all that stuff here in California. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as the mountain lion ban too. It's like the same mountain yeah. lions are getting killed. But right, instead yeah, of they're people it. paying to do it, now you have to pay somebody to do it. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty exactly. stupid. Yep. Uh, I don't mean yep. to go down that that road, but um, <laughs> that's that's just, how my, right. that's just how my brain works. Um, yeah, yeah. So, what other projects have you worked on? So, what kind of how many goose species do you get out there? We get um, man, we get all kinds of the cackling geese, um, Aleutian geese. Um, Regular small cackling geese, can large Canada geese, um, white fronts, tule geese, snow geese, Ross geese, um, brant on the coast. Those are cool little birds. Yeah, I've like never them. really had a chance to chase them or. Yeah, or I'd anything, like to. But... I'd like to do a. I wouldn't mind a brant hunt. That'd be pretty sweet. Yep. I think it do. A, yeah, they we, do a fair we, amount of collaring of those too, don't they? Uh, yeah, they do a lot of like the tarsal bands. bands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They catch them up on the nesting grounds and then they do the big molt drives and put tarsal bands on them. What I, what we do is mostly focus on, um, most of our projects are focused on either pintail, um, because that's a pretty tough, touchy subject here in California. And then like our local population, most people don't realize that we have a pretty substantial local breeding population of ducks in California. And it kind of ranges from, 250,000 all the way up to 500,000 mallards um, that breed here in California. And so that's, um, wow, that's a lot. it's kind of nice for us because we have a lot of opportunity to study them and, and track them and ban them and stuff too. So hmm. that's, that's kind of a lot. So the, yeah, these... it's, um, it's pretty substantial. And oh. most, most folks don't realize that um, in California, like 68% of the, the mallards that we shoot in California are raised in California. So we're not getting like these huge, huge pushes from up north like a lot of people assume. You know, it's all most of the mallards we kill here are are born and raised here. How much are they moving? Are you are you noticing any like um, feed based migrations? Mm, uh, I don't know about feed based, but mostly like they do a molt migration for sure. So mm -hmm. we'll have like a lot of birds that nest in the Sacramento Valley, and a lot of them will head up to northeastern California or southern Oregon and molt up there. And then they'll do their thing and then come back. So we, we actually will target them on that molt. I mean, that's kind of our, our best chance to catch them is when they can't fly. So we can set up uh, swim-in traps or we'll go out in airboats at night and nightlight them and catch them that way and band them. So. Okay. Why are, why, are they, why are they molting there, do you think? Um, it's, it's a natural um, basin that's always had good water until recently. Okay. Um, Last year, they had a crazy botulism die-off. It was estimated, last I heard, it was like over 40,000 birds died up there. Holy smokes. So there was just the all the all the right things happened to have like this massive die-off up there. there. The water situation up there is very, um, it's gotten very political, and the refuge up there just doesn't have the water rights. And so they kind of got screwed last year, and they had water, and then they got it pulled, and they weren't able to maintain the water. And so when the water drops that's kind of when the botulism really kicks off and gets going and uh yeah it was just a, a cluster last year so hopefully we can prevent that this year but that definitely was a damper on our local mallard population 
Yikes, that's that's is quite the that is quite the hit. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. And what what can done be done to mitigate that? Nothing. Just figure the politics out and um, <laughs> play yeah, nice. Yeah, they're they're working on like some better legislation for getting better water um, water availability to the refuge. And then um, it's really it's tough, man. Like last year, they had there was a fire on part of the refuge, so they weren't able to get in there um, to get. So with botulism, you know, you'll have some birds die, and then it kind of. Um, it just grows exponentially the more birds are on the water because the, there's maggots and then the birds eat the maggots and it just keeps pushing it through mm. the system. So, so when you have the die off, you know, if you can get out there and get to the birds and pick them up and, you know, get them out of the system, then it really can slow down the outbreak. But, you know, the water was too low to run airboats. Then there was a fire on part of the refuge where we weren't able to get in to get the birds and it just, it just blew up. So, um, hopefully they'll have a little bit better water allocation and then they, you know, if you can just maintain the water level that you have, you know, cause I mean, it's a huge, very important area for bolting. So you don't want it to just dry up. Right. Um, and so, you know, if you can just mitigate and keep the water levels up, that'll help, you know, keep it down and then just have access to get to the birds. I mean, it botulism happens every year. It's, it's in this, once it's in the soil, it's in the soil. And it's there and you're going to have problems, but it's just a matter of staying on top of it, you know? Is that is that a bacteria or a virus or Um, is it is it it a prion kind of a thing? I think it's uh, I can't remember. I think it's a bacteria in the soil, and it's kind of when the when the vegetation decomposes. You know, it's where it kind of kicks it off. Yeah, it seems it it seems like the stagnant water, swampy stagnant water, is where I always hear. Yeah. About things. Yeah, if you can if you can keep the the water flowing, you know, that kind of keeps it keeps it fresh too. So. Don't know Just much about it. Through the Just system. Interesting. I didn't. I didn't really know that that was a yeah. a threat to waterfall because they they seem to be in swamps already. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, yeah. It seems kind of yeah, yeah. That's the warm Weird. weather. The warm weather one that hits them pretty hard. Sure. Yeah. Um. So pintails. What are you finding on those? The migratory habits of of your pintails there. Yeah, most of our pintail are coming from like Prairie, Canada. And uh, so California is pretty unique. We winter roughly like 30% of the continent's pintail. So most people don't really, they don't realize that, you know, most of the pintail are coming to California. And so if you're a duck hunter in California, a lot of these folks hunt the rice fields, you know, and you go out there and you can only shoot one pintail, but you're seeing hundreds or thousands of them every single day. And it's, it can be real frustrating. Hmm. And so um, we've been banning pintail for a long time. And basically our, our role is just to kind of keep supplying that banning data so that eventually um, they can look at these models and hopefully redo the models to hopefully allow us to harvest a few more pintail. So that's kind of in the process right now is they're finally looking at the model and hopefully um, within a year or so, hopefully they'll have a new model out that's a, a little more accurate and a little more, you know, we've had, um, I mean, basically the pintail story was in the, you know, in the seventies, there was tons of pintails and then, um, the droughts of the eighties came and all, all duck populations basically dipped down pretty low. Right. Well, in the nineties, the water came back and most of the populations bounced back except for pintail. And so they've kind of looked at it pretty good. And a lot of it is based on their breeding habitat. So these pintail like the short, they're short grass nesters. And so 
what's happening in Canada, Prairie Canada, is they would do it's like no-till farming. So they'd go and harvest the fill and they would leave the stubble there. Well, that stubble is attractive to pintail. And so the pintail would come back and during nesting season, that stubble's there and it looks attractive to them to, to do their nesting. Well, the farmer is going to come through and he's going to plow it before they're done nesting. And so it's just kind of this this trap that these pintail are in and where their nests are just getting hammered up there. And, you know, like the data showing we've had like these restrictive limits on pintail for 30 years now. And it's not the population hasn't done anything, you know. So um, a lot of the data is suggesting we can definitely have like a higher harvest on pintail and it's not going to affect our population. So a lot of this banning that we're doing is kind of trying to just provide the banning data for that. And keep well, that, that seems to be, I mean, I've, I've heard similar things, you know, that hunter harvest in general doesn't have much measurable effect on overall populations. You know, yeah, I'm, I mean, it can in some, some situations, but overall for the most part, I mean, it's mostly based on habitat, you know, that's the California is all based on habitat. You know, our mallard population, we have drought years, the population dips, we have wet years, it mm-hmm. comes up, you know, I mean, it's pretty, pretty easy to track. It seems to be like nesting success rates. It seems yeah. to be what drives it, you know, in winter weather or, you know, a late winter storm. You know, in the spring. Yeah, and they, I mean, it's really just like they that. tie it in. Um, they do the breeding surveys and then the pond counts, you know, and those are pretty, they have high pond counts. They're going to have higher breeding numbers. I mean, it just kind of goes hand in hand. I find it odd, and people have heard me bitch about this a million times, but like with the mallards, we have the hen restriction, and it's the only species of duck that has it. And I, I feel like it's kind of pointless and only good for writing tickets. I don't, I don't think it really does anything for the population. Yeah, I mean it probably doesn't. Um, you know, it it it's kind of a more of a feel good thing, I think. And then uh, you know, the, I don't. The pintails, don't right, would be much... a would be a poster child for that if it worked, right? It, you can tell the difference between a hen and a drake pintail just as easy as you can a hen and a drake mallard. Well, so... see, that's not that's not really the case because in in California, when they come down, they're they're still in their molting plumage, right? Mm-hmm. So they look very similar to a female. So the the males and the females are actually pretty hard to tell apart until you get into uh, November, December. That late, huh? That's yeah. That's when they really start, you know, fully coloring out, and so. There, there's talk about doing like a, a split season or or a, a late start to pintail where you can or you can have have one up until this date and then after you know whatever date when we feel that they're mostly colored out then you can shoot three males versus you know in one hmm. female so so they are looking at that because I know like yep. with you I mean we get the eclipse drakes on our mallards uh, here in Minnesota too yeah. and yeah the first few weeks of the season it's like it's tough yeah you know yep. you got to really you have to really look and at low light yeah. times it's like it's nearly impossible you're almost right. hoping yep. that they make some sound because you can yeah you know at yep. least tell the difference in their call but um yep. yeah it's pretty pretty difficult yeah but we don't get a, we don't get a lot of drake pintails in this state it seems like huh. most pintails we shoot in this state are hens for whatever reason huh. and That's i've heard it has something to do with like the drakes don't hang around you know, they, they get the job done. The hen, yeah, I mean, the hen generally, plays on the nest, and the drakes are like, see ya. Yeah, typically, um, I mean, for general general talk, the you know, once the hen starts incubating, then that's kind of when the male frees up. 
and they, you know, more or less, they form like these bachelor groups. Um, but they, they hang around for a while. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing if you've ever kicked a hen off of a nest and there's drakes around, how fast they, they are on her ass, dude. And they're harassing <laughs> her and they're chasing her. And I mean, it's crazy, dude. Yeah, don't, um, don't, duck culture is, is pretty rapey. <laughs> yeah. We, we can't, we're not supposed to say rape anymore. We're supposed to say forced copulation. That's the correct way to say <laughs> oh it. Oh, my now, God. Cause... <laughs> uh, forced yeah. copulation. Okay. Yep. Um, can't can't say duck rape anymore, I guess. So. Well, I mean, I guess that's a good thing. But yeah, that, that's weird. Yeah, it um, happens a lot, man. It's crazy. Um, I haven't, obviously, I haven't seen it with, well, I should say obviously, but we don't have that many Minnesota, so I haven't seen it with pintails, but I do see yeah. it with mallards. Like, yeah. you know, yep. Yep. up to two dozen drakes just relentless on this poor solo hen you know like yep. to the point yeah, where that... they almost kill her i'm sure at times they do you know it's just like oh yeah no God. they're yeah they're pretty ruthless um but yeah so typically you know like once they once they the hens are kind of busy raising the kids and stuff then the drakes kind of all peace out so like in california we'd kind of do two different pintail banding sessions one of them we call preseason one of them's postseason and when we do that preseason, that's like in September, usually like first week of September, we have birds down here to really go after them and chase them and start uh, rocketing them. And when we're catching them, it's uh, 90, probably 90% adult male pintail. So that's like all that we're catching. And then later into, into October and stuff is when we start seeing like some hatch ears and some females showing up. So yeah, they definitely move earlier and, and get out of there quicker. Earlier you said that you mostly put the trackers on hens is that for geese or ducks too both okay. yeah because you just if you have the transmitter on a hen you just can get that whole nesting ecology potentially too so that's just a lot more valuable than on the drakes but it might be kind of interesting to see where these drakes go after, yeah after no it would be cool yeah we're, we're trying to work on a project locally you know um, a lot of a lot of people in california are not seeing as many mallards as they used to and so there's a lot of talk about trying to do like a winter mallard study so we'd catch birds in the winter and then put transmitters on them and see where they're actually going that would be kind of tease that out because yeah. most of the all the stuff we do right now is all based off of like the summer breeding stuff. So we already know those birds are local and staying here, but you know, like the, the wintering birds, you know, there hasn't been much done. Um, I know like, um, Osborne lab down there in uh, Arkansas is doing a lot of winter mallard study stuff. So that's pretty cool. Um, seeing what those guys are doing down there. So on the West coast, you have a more temperate climate. Um, are you seeing more calendar type of migrations or, is it weather? Um, I think it's a little both. Like the different birds are different. Um, different birds are gonna. Some are calendar movers and some are um, weather movers. You know, like pintail. I mean, you can almost count that they're gonna be here in September. Same with the white-fronted geese. I mean, they just they like to move as soon as it gets cold up there or whatever. They they come down early. So um, mid to late September, early October. I mean, we've got thousands and thousands of white-fronted geese down here already. When's the season open on in California? Um, generally, it's a big in, state. In, I assume it's different. Yeah, there's a couple the different are. zones, um, but for the most part, um, in the middle of October, kind okay. of fluctuates. Yeah, right around the middle of October. So you're getting birds showing up well before season's even open. Oh yeah, yep. And we go all the way till January first. So we're we're pretty spoiled. I mean, we have a hundred day season out here. Um, we don't have like the 
the typical conservation hunts on like the white geese, like you guys get back there, but um, we have like a small five day late season goose hunt, which is pretty fun. That just ended a couple weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. For white fronts? Uh, white fronts and white geese, yeah. Oh, and white geese. Okay. That would be pretty so, sweet. Yep. But it's not like a conservation. You can't use e-collars and all that stuff. Yeah, but, it's uh, not the spring conservation order. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's right. I did hear about a um, a pretty late spec hunt out that, that way. Yep. That'd be a good time to get one for the wall. They're going to be... Gonna be yeah, I got out. man, I got one that was completely black on the belly. I should have saved it for a nice wall mount, but I got a couple, couple other birds I got to get mounted. For. Yeah, those ones are pretty neat. I mean, I like the the full on tar belly. Um, yeah, and it would be nice to have one as a comparison, you know, yeah. if you had multiple mounts. But me personally, I don't think they're as aesthetically pleasing as just one that has good barring. Yeah, know, that, yeah, nice that, even that total yeah. black belly. You're like. That's interesting, but I don't really want it on my wall. Yep. <laughs> kind yeah, of I got thing. a, I got a Thule goose. I got to get mounted first that I got a couple years or so ago. I got a spec in the freezer actually. It's been in there for a couple <laughs> of years. Yep. I'm just waiting for the funds to go, uh, to go drop it off. But yep, I don't really have that many trophies, honestly. Yeah, I've got one mount. That's all I got, and it's probably funny to you, but it's a blue wing teal, and we don't we don't get a lot of them here in California. Oh, is that right? So I got that one of my first years uh, duck hunting, so it was pretty cool. Not you don't that's get the, that's the only mount I got. No, no, we're seeing more and more of them, but um, it's it's definitely not common. You have cinnamons. Yeah. Yep. Cinnamons are real common. Okay. Not see. not real common, but they're around. I mean, if common you target enough. them, yeah, you can get them. Yeah. For yeah, sure. see that out. That out here is super rare. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Super. Yeah. It'd be the same thing. Be like, yeah, I'm getting a cinnamon. That thing's going on the wall. Yep. <laughs> if yeah. It's, if it's at all decent, of course. I mean, who knows yep. what it looks like if you get it? But I got a, a gadwall. Was my first duck that I put on the wall. Of all weird, <laughs> of all weird things to get. Yeah. Um, that was at a really late, late season uh, Nebraska hunt. That was pretty cool. A pair of big mallards, Jake and Han. I got a wood duck. And uh, snow goose. Yeah. Well, actually, the snow goose isn't mine, but I had one that I dropped off at the taxidermist, and somehow he lost it. Oh, geez. I don't know how a taxidermist loses a bird, but. Yeah, that's the other thing out here is the uh, blue geese. We, uh, I got one in the freezer, too, but those are less common out here for sure compared to out there. You have more graders on the West Coast than lessers? Uh, is that um, why? You mean Ross or Lessers? No, Lessers. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know the, um, I shouldn't say I know, it's my understanding that the blue goose phase is predominantly a, a lesser snow goose. Well, it's the, I think it's just the flyway. They're all lessers, I think, out here, but um, oh, okay. they're just not as common for whatever reason in the huh. flyway. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. The snows that you have out there, where are they? If you're looking at their migrations, where are they nesting? I wonder a lot if that of them are, uh, we actually get quite a few from like Wrangell Island, Russia. So there's, um, there's a big breeding population there. And then, uh, like the North slope of Alaska. Okay. So you're not getting those yeah, in, so we're not, interior, like right. Nunavut and stuff right. like that. So we get some, but not, not the bulk of our, bulk of our Okay. Yep. I would wager a guess that that's probably why that for whatever reason that kind of like right yeah they middle swath migration yep. has more of the blue goose yep. gene in it for whatever reason 
Yeah, I was out visiting a friend in North Dakota, and we went out scouting, and was, I was just blown away by how many. <laughs> There's how a many ton of them. There were. Yeah, it was just <laughs> yeah. insane. I mean, like you'll out here, you're you're literally you'll look through thousands of flocks and see like one or two. Oh, crazy! Yeah. So they're almost as rare as like a Ross, a blue face Ross. Well, yeah, that one's a lot more rare, but yeah, they're they're hard to find. Uh, that's that's on my. That's on my wish list, my hit Your list. Your hit list, huh? a blue, blue face Ross for sure. A buddy of yep. mine, Austin, he he got one like, I don't know, two, three years of starting to snow goose on. And I'm like, dude, get yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah, those the blue face Ross are definitely one of the coolest looking birds, I think. Those are pretty pretty cool. They're just pretty the neat. dark, dark color on them. Yep, and, they're pretty yeah. neat. And I, I just like the, I think even the Rosses in general, part of the conversation that Nick and I talked about last night that didn't get recorded was how these different species of geese seem to have, you know, a greater and lesser subspecies. Like each, yeah. each, each type of goose pretty much has, you know, a big version and a small version. And then with with snows, if you want to throw Ross's goose in there, it's even right. – there's another one yet. But then I guess honkers probably have the most, right, if you're breaking it down to – Oh, yeah, I think they're at, what, 11 or 12 subspecies now? That's in the crazy. Um, That's nuts. Depending on who you talk to and the classification and all that stuff. Right. And is that something, is that just, is that mostly regional or is there actually some genetic studies being done on that? Oh, it's genetic, I think. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, there's definitely genetics to it, I think. Hmm. That's some. But it's just different, different breeding locations. You know, a lot of it boils down to just kind of the, the diversity of their breeding locations and like their divergence or whatever from other populations. Sure. That was pretty interesting. I'd brought I'd brought up to Nick. There was a the Smithsonian put out a a uh, an article about there was some Egyptian art apparently, and in one of the paintings, I don't know if you've seen this, it depicted uh, potentially a, you know a goose species that nobody knows about. Hmm. You know, they're like almost oh, be an extinct species, and when you see the picture, you're like, uh, that looks like a red-breasted goose, pretty hmm. much. And if yeah, it's a full-size one, you would certainly think okay well that kind of makes sense you know that yeah. they would have a, a you know because there's a lot of species that have a a big and little even white fronts you have the greater white fronts and the lesser white fronts which i don't we don't really have lessers in right. north america but they're still they still exist you know what i mean yep yeah i get um People send me pictures on Instagram of like these, they think they have a lesser or something. And it's like, man, it, it could be, but you know, like a lot of them, they're just a little bit different. You're like, man, I don't know. It's, and then you have like different, you know, like, um, Bristol Bay, like there's a population that breeds in Bristol Bay and those birds are kind of a little bit bigger than a greater white fronted goose, not as big as a Thule goose. And so it's like this, just this weird range, you know, of all these different, different birds. So, right. Oh, hold on. Decline. Someone's trying to. Someone's trying to call me. I, th- I tried sending you a picture of that. Uh, I don't know if it went through or not. Nope, didn't go through because someone tried calling me right at the moment. I'm gonna <laughs> try this again. I don't know how familiar you are with the red-breasted goose, but um, they're pretty dang cool looking. But this definitely looks like a greater version of it, or it's close enough that the the relationship can't be that far down the evolutionary line, anyways. Yeah. But uh, I had then I got distracted by both me looking for that and the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> totally derailed my train of thought. Where was I going with that? 
Hmm. Well, it's gone now. <laughs> what things are you looking at working on in the future? Um, well, right now, so right now we're kind of shifting, um, into nesting season. And so, um, California, we started, um, we're calling it a delayed wheat program. And so, um, a lot of the, a lot of the ducks here in California tend to nest in ag fields, mostly wheat or like, um, cover crops for rice or, or other, other crops. And so we're working on a program where we're working with the wheat farmers to delay their harvest so that most of the birds can get out of the field before they go in there and harvest the, harvest the field. Um, and then we also kind of start up our egg salvage program, which ties in real closely with that, where basically if farmers have to go in and disc a field, they'll uh, save the eggs out of there. And we'll take them to a facility and we'll raise the eggs, um, raise the birds till they're about um, five to six weeks old and then band them and let them go back out in the wild. So all that stuff's, uh, we kind of got a little break now. We just finished up our postseason banding and then now we're going to start shifting into nesting season and then um, wood duck boxes. So we manage um, a bunch of wood duck boxes. I'm the wood duck program coordinator for California. We've got like 600 volunteers across the whole state to manage boxes and uh, produce a whole bunch of wood ducks for us roughly around 30,000 birds a year wow so, that's pretty good uh, yeah we're kind of shifting into that it seems kind of labor intensive that uh salvage operation yeah it can be for sure i mean um we've got like an egg salvage coordinator who works for us jason kosovich and he uh he manages a lot of that stuff and then we'll all the whole crew will go out and you know, we'll actually drive fields um, with a chain or a rope with hands on it and uh, the farmer's like hey i'm gonna harvest that field tomorrow we'll go out there the day before um try and get all the hens up find the eggs and take them to the facility um a lot of the times the farmers will just stop too you know if they're running a tractor and bump a hen up they'll get out and collect the eggs and then call us at the end of the day and we'll go pick them up and get them get them to the incubator get them going hmm. you how is that being received as far as like asking farmers to maybe plow later? Um, you know, it really depends. It really depends on the farmer. You know, a lot of the farmers who hunt and who understand it are like way into it. I mean, we, we have a farmer that pays his employees like per egg, like $5 per nest or I forget what it was, 20, 20 bucks a nest or something. So like his employees are like, they want to find those eggs you know and then there's other guys that you know they're like commercial operations like dude i don't have time to stop for a stupid duck you know so it's you get a wide range of of people but for the most part it's well received you know a lot of people understand um we're just trying to save what we can you know we save such a small amount of birds it's not like it's really saving the mallard population but it's really kind of tying tying ag and waterfowl hunters and our organization you know together to just kind of try and come up with better ideas for better, you know, breeding habitat for the birds. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more along the lines of the pintails, you know, like what we talked about in Canada where they're where they're nesting. Yeah. Um, what's being done or what can really be done about that? Kind of the same thing, just trying to Yeah, convince. it's real similar. It's just uh it's you know, the the farming practices changed and I think that's a big part of it. And so trying to get them to you know, have a farmer change his farming practices for a duck, you know, most, I don't know if you've been to Canada, but when I was up there, I didn't hunt, but I was up there for work, um, actually catching pintail up there. But the, a lot of the people up there, they don't even realize that it's like a Mecca for breeding grounds for ducks. You know, you're like, you're up here for ducks. Like, what are you talking about? What do you mean ducks? You know? And it's like, I don't know. It's just, uh, 
just it was interesting my experience there huh so once they kind of made aware of it did they soften up a little bit or yeah potentially i think the, the other problem too is though is like that short nesting habitat that the pintails prefer is not as abundant either right so if you get rid of that stubble too then you know i mean the, obviously the best thing from my perspective, but I've never really been up there and seen the farming or the practices is to just, you know, try and change that practice where they would, they would just till it, till it in the ground after they harvest it. Right. So that stubble's not there to attract them in the first place. And then hopefully they would select to nest in like a different, um, different habitat. But yeah, that's, that's just out of my realm, man. I don't, I don't know. I don't work up in Canada, so I don't know how practical that is or, or not. But there's of, definitely Ducks Unlimited Canada. I mean, all, a lot of folks, Delta, these folks are all looking into it, you know, so hopefully we can kind of figure some stuff out. Have you heard of anybody exploring the option of, like, what we could do on, as far as, like, public lands? You know, we got, whether it's CRP, well, I guess CRP is not public, but, or WMA, WMAs, WPAs that have these large swaths of, of tall grasslands, maybe, you know, let somebody go in there and bail that thing off. You know, so in the spring, before the new shoots grow up, that it would be suitable nesting habitat. Yeah, I'm not, um, I mean, I'm just not familiar with that area. But, you know, like out here, there's a lot of programs for for farmers to, you know, leave their cover crop on. So that is beneficial to ducks. And then um, there there is some incentive. We're trying to get some legislation passed where there is some incentive for them to get paid for leaving that, that field fallow, you know, that's mm-hmm. like our delayed wheat, our delayed wheat program is we're actually paying, paying the farmers, the, the difference that they would lose by letting their wheat go a little longer. Sure. And so that's kind of how we're trying to compensate them. And that was, it was pretty well received last year. Um, that was our pilot year doing it. So this, it'll be interesting how it works out this year. So that'd be like the spring wheat, like they're, they're harvesting crops in the spring or early winter summer. wheat. Yeah. Or most of them is this. Okay. Yeah. It's winter wheat. Yeah. It's planted in early winter and then they're, they're pulling it off in the spring. I gotcha. That June, June, July. That usually makes when sense. They're harvesting it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right in the middle. Of nesting so here season. in the, in the like prairie, well, we're not really prairie pothole. We're on the edge of the prairie pothole region, I guess. But even in Minnesota, yeah. we have, we have some, you know, a lot of public land that is, uh, it's prairie, but it's, it's tall grass, right? It's like um, when it's, it's just left alone. And so right. it, it's pretty much overgrown. I don't know how valuable that is to nesting ducks. It's almost like if somebody would go in there and, and mow that down to not, you know, obviously not flat to the ground, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's happened to us up. where it's, we have, um, like we have a whole branch of California waterfowl that does like restoration projects. And they'll go in and they'll plant like native grass and it, it'll be great. Well, one man, this one project, it got so overgrown that we couldn't even nest search in there anymore, but the ducks were still using it, but oh, it was just okay. a pain in the butt for us to get in there. Sure. But, well, know, then that's maybe I guess it doesn't, here. maybe it doesn't benefit then to yeah. cut it down. They can use the tall grass just as much as they can use the short grass, I guess. But the, yep. my mind was going to that just because you were saying it's so, you know, that cut wheat stubble is so attractive to pintails as potential right. nest habitats like well let's let's mow down some yeah. big grass areas then some crp and make yep. that look yeah no there was there's been a lot of different talk i mean there at one point they were talking about doing like a a pintail stamp where you buy like your extra pintail stamp so you can harvest an extra pintail mm. and then that all that money goes up to canada to the nesting grounds you know um but that was kind of just an option that was out there i don't know I'd if be that down for that. i think that i think hunters have done a good job sportsmen in general because they have kind of the same thing we have a, like a 
a walleye stamp that you can get here. Uh-huh. It's just voluntary. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. It's like you just want to pay a little extra money. And But I think sportsmen in general do a good job of voluntarily taxing themselves um, to go back to the resource, which is yep. a pretty rare thing in the in the yeah. world of taxation right. <laughs> where <Yep>. someone's <laughs> willing to pay more. Yeah. Um, but it benefits them. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's a direct, direct correlation. Yeah. I'd be, and then you're, you're able to take those funds and, and do stuff, good stuff with it. You know? Yeah. I'd be, I'd be down for that. Um, with our spring conservation, the snow goose hunt every year, the conversation comes up about having like, because obviously you can't shoot ducks, right? It's just right. all snow geese, light, light geese, but the ducks have never looked better. And you're just yeah. in this carpet of beautiful drakes it's like day in and day out and so the conversation always comes up like what if they had a trophy tag system and you could charge (laughs) a ridiculous amount like 50 bucks a tag or 100 bucks a tag i guarantee you a ton of people are going to buy this tag and that's just good for a drake of any species one drake of any species and you have to register it just like you would like a swan tag or a buck tag or anything like that because you know the drakes aren't going to affect the population yeah, all, I mean, you, you just the, the only problem is when the later you get into breeding season, you know, these birds are fair, forming pair bonds and they're trying to, you know, get into breeding. So the later you hunt them, the more you're just kind of messing with that whole cycle. It's true. That could be a possibility. But then you yeah. have that forced copulation or whatever right. they're calling it yeah. these days. Yeah. <laughs> just can't say yep. the R word anymore. Yep. Well, it's like <laughs> California, man. They keep, uh, we just went, um, the regs just changed where you can hunt all the way up to the 31st of January. And then, um, we do a late season junior hunt. So that goes a week after that. And now they added on a late, uh, season veteran hunt, which is awesome, but it's now pushing it back two weeks past, um, duck season, you know, so you're getting into like the second week of February and there's guys out there still hunting ducks. Sure. I guess I don't so. know what time of year do they, do they usually, are they pair bonded? Cause I, I know like when we're hunting in March, I'm going to head out guiding in South Dakota here in a matter of days. Um, when I'm watching those ducks out there, I don't really see too many of them paired up. You know, it's that typical, especially with pintails, you see it one hen and, you know, eight, yeah, or, think, eight or more drakes doing the courting yeah. dance with her, you know, yeah. mallards too, for that matter. Yeah. I mean, for us here, I mean, most of the, most of the mallards are already forming pair bonds and stuff in December. And okay. so that, that really shifts. Um, obviously you're going to have like groups of, you know, young birds that aren't paired up or birds that are just kind of, you know, in flocks and stuff, but it seems like the pintail, you know, like they're, they're probably paired up, but they're in big groups, you know, pintail just like to be, um, together in, mm-hmm. in large groups, you know? So, um, they're probably paired up. They're just in within that group of pintail, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. That could be it. I know last year I yeah. started the season down in Arkansas, the conservation order and Holy smokes. So they got pintails. Don't yeah, they? no, we, we've, <laughs> we've already got wood duck, wood ducks going in nesting boxes here for, for breeding season there's already i guarantee you there's hooded mergansers already laying eggs in our nest boxes we just haven't had a chance to get out and check them yet oh wow that's kind of crazy yep i wouldn't have thought that early but again you have such a the, the weather out in california is so oh yeah it's so much beautiful today and blue sky the... probably 65 degrees 70 degrees already oh, well yeah blue skies here i think in 40 40 something there you go. Not too bad <laughs> yeah spring is i think we're gonna have a pretty good spring or early spring it's, it seems to be shaping up i mean it was it was only a few weeks back where it was 25 below zero but um, yeah yeah it, it seems to be now that it's turned i think it's 
At least I'm hoping, hoping it's here to stay. Yep. Um, yeah, we could use a little rain. Uh, we're we're looking not looking very good for our reservoirs are low, and we could use some water. So we definitely need some spring rains to come through. I was going to ask you uh, back to that botulism part, as far as like managing the water. Where does most of your water come from? Is it meltwater in the mountains or? Yeah, you get the snow runoff, and then you get just the precipitation, you know, that collects in the reservoirs and stuff. Okay. Yep. I wasn't quite The problem sure. up, the Klamath problem is a little different. Um, there's just the, the easiest way to explain is there's just they promise more water than they have to give out, and so every you know they just get shorted. Somebody's going to get shorted, you know. And so right. between the farmers, there's like um, an Indian reservation involved that has water rights, and then there's you know like endangered um, sucker fish that have like environmental laws around them to get water to, and so it's just, it's just a big cluster of of politics up there but we've been working on it for a long time i mean hopefully it looks like we're finally getting some traction so hopefully um we can finally get a little bit better source of water for the refuge up there sure on the on the hunter aspect of it do you got uh what are some do you travel much or you just pretty much got it so good in california there's no need to yeah i mean i you know like i went out to north dakota and saw a buddy and hunt out there um we mostly just pheasant hunting but that was pretty awesome um I'll I'll venture to Nevada or Idaho a little bit, but other than that, I really do most of the hunting within 30 minutes of my house. Well, it's pretty sure, awesome. You sure don't hear duck hunting in Nevada mentioned very often. Yeah, no, the there's there's sense. a little bit of opportunity out there. I, I grew up in Lake Tahoe, and so um, it's kind of in between California and Nevada right uh-huh. there. It's right on the state line. And so we'd go hunt out there in Nevada a little bit. And there's a, there's a couple spots when there's good water years, there can be some pretty good hunting out there for sure. You can, you can shoot a swan out there too. I've gotten a tag, but I've never been successful getting a swan yet. We got, um, yeah, in the Dakotas, you can get tags for swans yeah. too. And we, yeah. we did that. I usually get one and we go out and we did get a couple swans the one year. Yeah. Um, yeah. and Minnesota's yeah. thinking about it. It's on the, it's on the table. Yeah, Cal- it hasn't been I don't think yet, California. But. California will never let us shoot swans or sandhill cranes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and that's the crane thing. We're we're trying to get both those hunts going here because their population is is a uh, pretty incredible. I did a I had a uh, another gentleman on the podcast, uh, David Wolfson, I think, is if I recall, that's his name. But he was part of some swan research studies mm-hmm. here in uh, Minnesota, and some of the numbers that he threw out was pretty incredible. Like when they're restoring the swamp population they had a, they originally had a goal of 30 nesting pairs and right now we have 40,000 nesting pairs Jeez. with another wow. 30,000 cygnets so wow. we've yeah. far 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 you know yep. achieved that goal of 30 yep. nesting pairs yeah it's so, amazing how just the populations can bounce back yeah they for sure they for sure could uh could take very you know some minimal hunting pressure and it yeah. you know, they would do the tag system the same and same with the the um sandhill cranes i mean there's just more and more and more of them every year it's quite incredible but we have a similar opposition to swans and cranes because they're you know they fall into that kind of charismatic megafauna they're they're large yeah. birds um yeah. easily seen easily championed um, yeah there's something about sandhill cranes man people just uh like so connected to them so interesting I, I remember a guy, the, and he would, like, 
he'd get so excited when he saw like his first sandhill crane of the season, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. I mean, I like that stuff too. I mean, I take yeah. note of that even as a hunter. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. out and all yeah. of a sudden you hear that call, you're like, oh, well, cranes are back. Cranes yeah. are back. Sweet. Yeah. And I've seen them show up when we're still blanketed in snow too. I'm always like, boy, they must be disappointed. <laughs> but they're probably better off finding food than we give them credit for. I mean, they got that long ass beak. I'm sure they can. I'm sure, a little bit of snow ain't gonna stop them from probing yep. around and finding some food. But all right, dude. Well, where can people find you? Follow along. Uh, yeah, um, birdieologist on Instagram. That's pretty much it. And then uh, California waterfowl. It's, uh, that's my employer where, where I work. So. That's pretty cool. Where and where? Where's most of the funding coming from for these projects? Like uh, um, a lot of it, we get some from duck stamp money. So some of our banding projects come from like the state duck stamp funds, um, and then a lot of it's from just our organization, private donors, um, fundraising events, all that kind of stuff through CWA. Very cool. All right, so people buy yep. uh, buy two duck stamps next year instead of one. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Why not? They're only a few bucks. Yeah, not a big deal. I've bought a. I think I. I've bought a couple of Fed stamps a few times, just like, why not? Yep, that all helps. Goes right back into the same thing. Well, Brian, yep. thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. This was fun. It was interesting. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, uh, thanks for start, having me on. Yeah, when you start getting some crunching these numbers and, and getting some findings, let me know. We'll do it again. Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll be able to share some stuff when it comes out. So I might always... have to bother you again in the future anyways once I have Nick on and he'll have some yeah. more detailed <laughs> questions to ask you gotcha <laughs> he might not speak to me now for a while because i went ahead and did it without him but that's you know, <laughs> how it goes <laughs> yep <laughs> he'll be fine he'll be fine Good. all right man appreciate it no problem all right take care bye, bye.